And welcome once again to another edition of Footnotes. Pastor Mark here, joined today with our other pastors, Brady and Brandon. And today's topic is one that we hope will be so beneficial, not only to ourselves personally, but to you as well. Wherever you are, if you're a believer, there's always going to be the potential for conflict. There is always going to be issues, and we need to know, how do I handle conflict in a biblical way? We want to just help you think through how to handle conflict in your life, how to handle it corporately, personally, in every way. And the Bible actually addresses this, so we're going to just walk through it together as pastors. Okay, so as we get started with the biblical conflict and how to manage it, we're going to be talking today uh, basically three questions. What is biblical conflict in the Bible? How do we do it? Is there a way and a method? There is. The Bible prescribes and describes And then thirdly, why would we want to do this? So what is it? How do we do it? Why would we want to do this? Now, let me give a disclaimer at the very beginning of the podcast. There is an old Southern gospel hymn. You guys remember this? And uh, it was written. Who who wrote it? It, 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 I was singing it earlier to you. You're so vain. Oh, Remember that? Yeah, yeah. You probably think this song is about you. Who who sung that? What Southern Gospel artist sung that? Was it Carly Simon? You, why do you guys not know this? Hold on. Because we weren't born. <clears throat> Google, Google. Carly Simon? Well, we're going to go with that because I don't have time to look up if it was the Carpenters or Carly Simon or whoever, what other grunge group you kids listen to today. But there was an old song called you're so vain, and you probably think this song is about you. You're right. It's Carly Simon. Carly Simon, I got it right. Okay, so let me just say to everyone listening, whatever date this is in the future, whatever you think is happening, this song is not about you, okay? <laughs> so don't be so vain and think, you probably think this podcast about you. Come on, guys. You're so... Brandon, hit it. Vain. Yes. <laughs> Brady, you probably think this podcast is about you. Yes, very Don't good. Don't you. <laughs> Don't you. And it's not. All right. So I don't know how, how any other way to put that. And uh, I mean that with all of my heart. Because anytime we do podcasts, people think, you're talking about me, aren't you? That's called the Holy Spirit. All right. So you deal with him and we'll deal with the podcast. All right. So we're not talking about any particular situation or any person. But what we are doing is trying to equip our people so that they'll know how to handle conflict when it comes. So let's talk number one. What is biblical conflict? Well, uh, Matthew 18, uh, 15 to 20 talks about, you know, what happens if your brother sins against you, right? So um, it kind of lays out in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell, say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So basically, if you know, as a Christian, if someone sins against you, it's your responsibility to go to them one-on-one and say, hey, brother, like, you did this to me. Um, you know, I believe you sinned against me. Um, you know, I forgive you. Kind of, but um, kind of going and reconciling with that brother and seeing if they repent, if they apologize, um, instead of you know gossiping about it with someone else or going to the pastor and saying, "Hey, so and so sinned against me." It's your job to go to the person who sinned against you. And we call this. It's been called by other people in church history, church discipline. Yeah. Now, church discipline sounds negative. The word discipline sounds negative, but the root word there is disciple, which means to teach. So biblically speaking, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is a primary passage of Scripture that deals with the subject of conflict and church discipline. This is how you do it. This is what it is. All right. So it's a very biblical concept. Um, You know, some of the things you mentioned, though, Brady, you said what do we often do when we have conflict with someone else? Our, our default sinful position is we want to go to people that we know are going to agree with us. So we want to go to them and say, let me tell you what happened. And I've heard people say, well, I'm just getting counseling. I'm just getting counsel, wisdom. I mean, they've used every word in the book over the years to try to say this is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm not going to the person that I have a problem with because I just need advice. Pastorally, this would happen to me so often. People would come and they would say, well, the reason I'm coming to you, I mean, I know you say we should go to other people, but I really just need your counseling. And then they would just proceed to complain about the person who's not in the room. And when you're doing that, you're complaining about a person that's not in the room or how they hurt you or whatever, that becomes slander. That is not counseling, right? Counseling is tell me what to do, to which my response would be Matthew 18. That is what you do. That is how you do it. Now, is here's the question. So so that's what church discipline is in the Bible. Is there is, Would that work in any scenario? Because I've also had people over my years of pastoring, tell me that does not work in this situation, whatever this situation is. So they always think there's an exception to the rule. We've got this rule given to us by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Jesus said it, but it doesn't apply to me here. Now, I heard a church say that one time when they fired their pastor. They said, this doesn't, Matthew 18 doesn't apply. This is business. And I'm thinking, it's business. You, you had a problem with this guy, and you guys didn't get along. And so you should have followed that. And then I've had people say, you know, when there's, and, and this has been common all throughout my senior pastor ministry. So I've been a senior pastor now in that position for almost, uh, gosh, 20 years. 
So in that time of being at various churches, and there's always staff people under, so many people would come to me, and they would reason, well, you're the boss, you know, so I'm going to tell you. And there's some logic to that. I'm not saying that's completely wrong, but I guess my question to you guys, is there ever a time when we would tell a Christian, no matter what it is, whether it's a staff disagreement or whether it's a personal disagreement or whether it's a conflict or I just don't like that person, would we ever tell them not to follow Matthew 18, 15 through 20? Absolutely not. Uh, I, I would say never. 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 And I'll even say um, the reason for that is because according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors of Christ, but we are also about the ministry of reconciliation. So yes, we should be reconciling those outside the church to God, but we are also, every one of us, not just pastors, not just deacons or whatever, we, all of us, every single church member should be about the, the ministry of reconciliation between brothers uh, and sisters uh, to one another and ultimately to Christ. Because in Matthew 18, it talks about, you know, when we do that, I mean, we're ultimately reconciling them to God. And if it if the process doesn't work, then that means we have to tell the church and we're essentially turning them over to the devil. I mean, that's where we hear it in uh, other parts of Scripture um, as it relates to church discipline. So I would say there is never a case where we should not follow Matthew 18 model for church discipline. So a believer listening to us has a problem with another person and they say, what do I do about that? How do I handle conflict? We had a disagreement. We're mad at each other. We don't like each other. What do I do? You go to the person. That, yeah. That's what you do. You do biblical church discipline. Now, before we move on to how to do it, let's keep on the what. So what is this? What is biblical conflict resolution? It's called church discipline. It's in Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20. We're told what it is. There's two different types of church discipline or discipleship. Most people don't realize this, but the first type is called preventative church discipline. So every time you're in a Bible study and you're under Scripture and you're being challenged, that's preventative discipleship discipline that's happening in your life. You're in a discipleship group with a bunch of guys, and you're talking about— you know, I don't know, some issue like in your marriage or in your personal life that you're struggling with and you're going over Scripture together, that is preventative. That Scripture, that accountability, that confession is going to help prevent you from possibly falling into sin at a later date. Every time the preacher gets up to preach and says, look in the Bible and let me explain this, He's preventatively disciplining, discipling you because you're under the Word of God and you're listening to Scripture. And we don't often know how many times the Holy Spirit has used the Bible, whether it's personally, privately, or corporately, to discipline us and prevent so much sin coming out in our life. So there's preventative church discipline. And so every time you're under the Word— God is doing that in your heart and life, and you're being disciplined, whether you realize it or not. Now, then there's corrective church discipline, and that's where, okay, it's gone from preventing you to sin where you have sinned, 
and that needs to be corrected. So it's either going to have to be corrected by somebody coming to you or you confessing or you know some measure of confrontation. There's going to have to be corrective discipline that happens. And that's really where this church discipline becomes much more than just something preventative. It comes, becomes something very public to some degree between you and another person or you and two or three people or you you and the church. So And it's super uncomfortable. Um, you know, it's it's not always meant to be easy and, and comfortable in those situations when you're confronting a brother or sister and in, in, you know, what you believe is sin, you know, that you're trying to um, uh, to point out and, and hopefully correct in that manner. Uh, but I would liken, you know, the even the preventative discipline going back to that. I mean, it's just like, you know, going to the gym or running outside or, uh, you know, trying to eat uh, healthier. Um, that is preventative because you're trying to prevent disease or uh, uh, heart disease, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Um, that come from neglecting uh, the body and the mind and things like that. And so on a much higher level, you know, it is important for all of those seasons of our life where we are under the Word of God, where we are leading our families um, in family worship, right, Brady? That's right. And uh, doing all of those things to discipline ourselves um, first, because we need that, just like when you get on an airplane and the flight attendant's like, please put the mask on yourself first before you put the mask on your child, you know, if there's a low oxygen situation or whatever. Um, but it's true. We have to discipline ourselves, and then we're able to kind of help discipline our families and our, our children and guide them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, but that is so crucial because if we focus on that, then I believe that limits. It does limit the corrective discipline. You don't have to go down that road. Right. Yeah, if we would all do that Potentially, yeah. and be under the Word and, and listen to what the Word says. Now, let me also point this out. People listening to this may say, I hate confrontation. I don't like mm-hmm. confrontation. Now, what would you guys say to that? I would but, say I'm one of those. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. how many times have you told me that? And <laughs> and what have I always told you about ministry? Uh, there's always conflict. Constantly. Yeah. And if, if you can't do it, then you can't. I mean, I just, and it, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the sinner that has the problem. There's certainly people out there who I attempted Matthew 18 on who would say, mm-hmm. yeah, he's the problem. But... I mean, seriously, I've never, ever, ever been in a, in a church where there wasn't the need to confront constantly. I mean, whether it's the couple that's splitting up, somebody's got to confront that. Or whether it's the wayward staff member, somebody's got to confront that. Or whether it's sin in the camp, right? Somebody's got to confront that or, or whatever. And And look, it doesn't even have to be anything big. Anytime you get people together in any organization— there's conflict. I mean, if there weren't, we wouldn't have HR departments. We wouldn't have psychologists that have to counsel us because we would be able to solve the problems. Conflict to me is like everywhere. And people's like, well, I don't like it. And so what typically happens in my humble but very inaccurate viewpoint is that people avoid conflict. But what they're really doing is just creating more. So 
just before we move on, I just want to point this out to anybody listening that says, well, I don't like conflict. And so I'm going to run from that. And I'm not going to go and approach anybody with Matthew 18. Well, let me just warn you, you're creating bigger problems. So you're sweeping yeah. the dirt under the rug, proverbially speaking, and you're you're going to create a bigger mess. So, so let's give some examples. What would happen if we just avoided confronting when it when things need to be confronted? Well, it'd be really awkward uh, because relationships would stay shallow. Uh, you wouldn't really know who you're working with or who you're ministering to or praying for uh, because conversations would never get below surface level in that type of environment. Well, our actions always affect other people. And so say if someone lied to you and you let that go and they continue to lie, well, eventually that affects other people and they lie yeah. to other people. And all of a sudden, you know, things like church splits happen that could have co- totally been prevented if that member would have been disciplined, would have been addressed, confronted, and all of a sudden you have half of a church, you know, leaving or a church being destroyed because sin wasn't dealt with you know, prior to that point. And so sin always grows when it's unaddressed, when it's not dealt with. Um, I mean, yeah, you even have any examples in the Bible of one person's sin affecting their whole families, um, you know, Korah's rebellion. Well, if Korah, maybe if that was a, you know, in that incident, if he was kind of usurping Moses's leadership on a regular basis and another brother went to him and said, Korah, you need to listen to Moses. God appointed him over you. You need to like repent. Maybe that would have prevented him from leading this rebellion and him and his whole family and all these people being swallowed up in the earth by the Lord. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's loving. If we love our brothers, we're going to confront their sin and say, hey, brother, I love you because I love you more than my own comfort. And this is an awkward conversation I'm not enjoying. I love you. I'm going to confront you and tell you about this and I see in your life and I pray that you repent. So when we don't repent we're, or we don't confront, we're saying I love my own comfort more than I love my brother and I'll let them continue on in sin and go and hurt other people, and I'm not going to deal with it because I'm too scared and I love my comfort. Well, that's a good way to put it. Uh, you love your comfort more than you love helping and speaking the truth in love. I, w- I love what our church covenant actually says. Uh, the second line, um, or at least the second line that I have here, it says, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It doesn't say we will watch and pray. I mean, we have to work. It is something that takes work. It takes effort. And usually that makes people uncomfortable. Um, And so it's not something that happens naturally. Uh, Conflict resolution, it doesn't doesn't just go away if we avoid it. It The conflict will remain forever. It will fester, like you've said. It will grow. It will divide. It will rip us apart. We have to work as a church and actually put effort uh, to go beyond those comforts and to go beyond our desires and our wants to make it right with our brothers and sisters. Yeah, and and that is a good point. We have to work for peace. And, you know, my thing is if we if you let it go and you don't deal with it, I mean, believe it or not, I don't like confrontation. I don't. I don't want to do it as much as the next person but I've told Brandon and I, we've talked about this often, but I can't sleep at night and just let problems be problems. I, I can't do that. If I know something's got to be fixed, you know, it's like the kitchen. I can't sleep if the kitchen is dirty. So I go in and clean it up every night and make sure all the dishes are done. And there's this thing I have with the, the oven counter has to be wiped. 
and the coffee pot has to be ready. And so I do that every night. I can't sleep. And that's just me because if it's, if it's messy in there, I don't know why I can't sleep, but I can't sleep. And in the same way, I can't, I, I can't function, you know. So there's, we've had problems here at times, and, and it's like, okay, we can either ignore that. And when we ignore that, everybody else is frustrated. Everybody else comes to us. When are y'all going to fix that? When are you going to do something about that? Everybody's frustrated, but nobody wants to do anything about it. And it's like, we're frustrated. We want something to happen. So it's like, okay, well, we can either just continue to let this fester and be okay with it, or we just have to deal with it. And if and hopefully dealing with it is done in a loving, peaceful way. That's right. always the goal. Yeah. We want to be peacemakers. But to be a peacemaker, right, to quote Ronald Reagan – Peace through strength. I mean, you don't, you know, you don't just give it all to the Soviets. I mean, it's peace through strength. It costs something. Yeah, you got to be armed and you got to be ready, and that's how you negotiate. You know, you. So how are we armed? Well, we're armed biblically. So our strength is not manhandling people or overbearing. It's a strength of shepherding. You have the rod and you have the staff, and both the rod and the staff are meant to fight the wolves and direct the sheep. And so you have to be willing to do that pastorally to say, I'm going to lead and feed and direct. And I, I can't let this go for the good of the church and the love of the saints for your own good. I can't let this go. You know, this, this bothers me and I wouldn't want it let go in my life. I would want somebody to come and say, let's talk, let's pray about this or whatever. Yeah. So we can try to sweep it under the rug and, and the comment people always make is, well, I just don't like confrontation and conflict and all that, but you can't, it, that's life. You can't get away from that. So either you're going to roll over and you're just going to accept things and, and you're going to deal with the bad repercussions of that. You're going to have to live in frustration or you're going to do what scripture says and says, okay, there's a loving way that I can confront my brother or sister in Christ. So let's now talk about how that's done, how that's done. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20, lays out steps, very clear steps. Now, if anyone wanted a book that highlighted Scripture to a great degree on this subject, I would recommend Jay Adams and his classic book, Church Discipline. I mean, that's what it's called. Uh, you can get it. They still produce it in the press, and it's a great little book. And Adams actually says there's, I think he says there's five steps in his book. Now, going back to what you were saying, Brandon, and I'm piggybacking off of old Jay Adams, is he says step number one is self-discipline. Hmm. So what you have to do in your own personal life is decide up front, can I let this go and love my brother or sister, or do I need to confront? So some things you can let go. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah. When you love somebody, I mean, yeah. you just overlook a lot of things. We overlook our kids and their behavior. We overlook our spouse. We certainly overlook ourselves. So, you know, I always know people don't love me when they're super critical, you know, when they're super critical of everything we're doing. That's a huge sign in the church. There's, there's a lack of love there. Because are we perfect? Of course not. Are they perfect? Of course not. Love's going to overlook a multitude of sins, as it is. But 
you first got to determine, can I overlook? Now, there are certainly some things you can't overlook, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Like what? Spell it all out, Brady. <laughs> Every sin you can't overlook. I'm kidding. Don't uh, spell them all out. But I, I don't know. Could we give an, an illustration? Like, what could we overlook? What could we not overlook? Yeah, I mean, if somebody says something hurtful, like, behind my back, and I hear of that, I mean, that's that's hurtful. Uh, I can't... It, it's hard to let something like that go, because for me, I'm always wondering, well... It, how often are they doing that? I mean, it like doesn't leave my mind. So for me, it's just something that's you conflicting let it, you my You let it spirit. roll off your back. Yeah. As I heard Stanley tell his wife last night, Nancy, yeah. uh, he said, honey, you just got to let it roll off your back like water off a duck's back. And I thought, <laughs> that's it. He's right. Yeah. Somebody had said something to her and she was like, I just don't know. And he, he just told her right there in the fellowship hall, you just got to let it roll off your back. And I said, well, he's right. Stanley's right. So, I mean, sometimes in our life, and that's a good example, so maybe we are heard somebody say something to us, or maybe they did not say hello to us, or maybe they snubbed us. Well, we have a choice. Am I going to let that go and love them anyway yeah. and let love cover a multitude of sins, or am I going to let this fester to where I'm so angry about that, I'm going to have to confront them. And I think in your illustration, you heard somebody say something to you, you just let it go. Yeah. And how many times have we had to do that, all of us, even listeners in our life, right? Sure. We've heard things. So Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Lectures to My Students, which is a good little book for pastors, he has a chapter in there called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And that whole little chapter, he quotes Solomon from Ecclesiastes. There's a verse that says, Do not listen to your servants too carefully, lest you hear them curse you. And so he takes that verse and he says, As a pastor, you're going to have to have a blind eye and a deaf ear. Hmm. So you don't always need to look at everything your people are doing, and you need to turn your ear deaf sometimes to the things that they're saying. And Spurgeon concludes that little chapter by saying, I have a blind eye and a deaf ear, and it's my best eye and my best ear. (laughs) And that is true. So think about, truthfully, how many times have we said things about people in rooms and among friends, and we really didn't mean it, but we said it. We've all done that. And that's what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes. That's what Spurgeon is quoting in the article We've all had times where if people could listen to every conversation we had, they would hear us cursing our master, right? Or they would hear the servant cursing the master. We've all done it. We've all said stuff. And we've done it to our spouses. We've we've said it and our kids heard it. We've said it to each other. You've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. Okay, that's biblical. It's wrong, but it's biblical. But the point is, if everybody recorded everything we said, we'd be in trouble, So thank God it's not all recorded, and thank God we can have a blind eye and a deaf ear because we need people to have a blind eye and a deaf ear with us, right? So it kind of – it's all there. So you have a choice. Step one, how do you do this? You have to decide, can I let it go? So in the words of Elsa, let it go. (laughs) Let it go. Now, there are times when you can't let it go, and you go, okay, no, this is too big. You know, you've really sinned against me, and and I've got to get this out. 
So step two is what? It's go to your brother. Okay. Which So the scripture commands in Matthew 18, 15, yeah. if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Yes. Between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. So step one is you've got to go to the person. But let's clarify a few things here. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say point 1A, though, because I think Jesus actually starts the discourse in Matthew 18 at the beginning unless he who humbles himself like a child will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he he even dials into, if you're going to do this, if you're going to live in this manner of resolving conflict with one another, you've got to be humble. So I would say... So that that's back at step wanna, one where yeah. you discipline yourself. Yeah. Okay, but step two is now if they've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I, yeah, did... Yeah, no, I'm just saying before you go to that no, brother. No, you've though, offended me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> before you've you offended go, me, Brandon. Before you go to your brother. Uh, okay. Make sure that you do it with the spirit of humility. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I said. Uh, one oh, a. Oh, oh, I see. I see. One I see. A. I see. See how that was so. Yeah, we, we worked that out. So that's an example, everybody. There you go. End of podcast. So, yeah. So you transition you, to point two. Yeah. So you step two, you go. But look, I want to say a few things about that. First of all, notice who has the impetus to go. It's not the person that did the offending. It's the offended. Yeah. Offended. My Southern offended. <laughs> the offended. <laughs> but it's not. So a lot of times when we're hurt, we think the exact opposite. Yeah. We think they hurt me. They, I'm going to wait for them to come to me. And I'm just going to give them the silent treatment. And when they come, I'm going to let them know what they did to me. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, if your brother sinned against you, you go as the offended person to them. Why would Jesus say to do it that way? Well, because does the offender know that he offended you? Correct. Very good. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I mean, maybe they don't know that they said something that ticked you off or hurt your heart or, I mean, how do you know that? Yeah. My, my pastor growing up, Brother Kevin, he used to tell, he told this story about how one time he was somewhere preaching and he said, I didn't even see this happen, but this woman got up in, in the middle of the service because she was having some kind of issue. And so she got up. And she was walking out, and he was telling a story while she was getting up and walking out about something to do with staying seated or or paying attention or, or something like that. And she thought he was talking to her about her to the congregation. And in all honesty, if I remember this story correctly, he didn't even see her. He did, you know, it was out of the corner of his eye. He did not even notice her get up. And he's just innocently telling this story. Well, she is offended at him for like a month and won't come back to church, you know, won't talk to the pastor. And so he goes and, and he, you know, says, what, what, are, what is so, you know, what have I done? And she says, well, you called me out. And he's like, what are you talking about? I called you out. And so he pieces it back together in his mind, and he goes, oh, my goodness, she's thinking that I was talking about her. I wasn't talking about her. You know, I was just giving an illustration and 
sovereignty of God. It just happened to be at the very time this woman happened to be getting up. And so that's an example, okay, albeit not the best example, but it's an example. The person may not really even know they offended you. And you've got to bear that in mind. Maybe they just made a mistake and it didn't even dawn on them. Um, Another thing that it says in that first verse, if your brother sins against you, you go to him. You go, the offended person. But then the next thing is what? Show him his fault. Now, what does that mean? Show him his fault. And I'm, I'm specifically pointing these things out because I think sometimes we talk about church discipline and conflict but we're not particular, and we don't get it right, and then it doesn't work. And we say, well, I tried that, and it didn't work. It's because you're not paying attention to the details. So this is a detail. First of all, you go. If you're offended, what's the other detail? Show him his fault. Why is that important? Because it needs to be a legitimate you know, sin. There has to be some kind of, not just... Well, your color of your car is blue, and I don't like that. Correct. You know, like, well, that's yes. that's not a. You can't be angry about that. There's no justification you have. That that's for that. right, and that's the point. Not everything that offends you is truly biblically wrong. It's sin. It's got to be a biblical sin. You can't just go to people. Well, I don't like the dress you're wearing, and I'm offended. Well, tough. I mean, I don't have any obligation to ask your forgiveness if you came to me about in, unless it's a Your sin dress. about my dress now see that would that would be sin that would be sin because i would be a trans something or other um yeah no okay so that's a bad example but but now it, i mean not to nitpick the illustration but yeah if you're dressed scantily yeah leading other people to lust well then yes mm. your dress offends me but if it's like i don't like your blue shirt well, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know what you want me to do. Okay, I'll give you an example. So I was preaching once in Texas, and I was using an illustration about my dad. Now, my dad was a steam fitter for years of his life, a foreman on the job. that They handle boilers, heaters, AC units. My dad worked for uh, J.W. Adams, who's a member of our church. (laughs) So like all my life growing up, I knew J.W. and I knew, you know, my dad worked for him. And um, J.W.'s company didn't do this. My my dad was in a union, so they'd kind of move around based on if work was available. But he ended up putting AC units in all the county schools, in the hospitals in Memphis, and the pyramid. So when I go in the pyramid, I always think my dad, I remember when he was in there and it was just a shell. In fact, I vividly remember him working as the foreman on Baptist DeSoto Hospital. I remember going up there as a little boy. I was probably seventh grade. This would have been about 1987. And I remember um, running around the, it was only three floors at that time, but running around the three floors of Baptist DeSoto Hospital on Saturday because my dad would say, I need to go back up there and I need to check some things. And it was just, it was a concrete slab. And I would I would run around thinking, this is where a hospital is going to be. And so my dad always did that, okay? And he was very knowledgeable about AC units, things of that nature. Well, I was using that as an illustration and I said, okay, I would not go and try to tell my father how to run AC units because he knows more than I do. He studied it all of his life. In the same way, and this was the illustration, I said atheist 
who have never read the Bible want to come and attack the Bible and criticize the Bible, but they've never studied it. They've never gone to seminary. They don't know, right? So I was making some kind of weird illustration like that. Well, that offended this guy in the church, and he comes to me on Monday morning. I need to meet with you. And I said, okay, and he's mad. His name was Tommy. I'll never forget it. Comes in my office, and he says, I just, I'm trying to follow Matthew 18. You've sinned against me. And I said, well, brother, how have I sinned against you? And he said, you think you're better than all of us. And I said, I do. And he goes, yes. Why do you think that I think I'm better than all of you? And he said, because of what you said yesterday in the sermon. And I'm like, okay, what did I say? And so he recounts the illustration. And I'm like, well, how did you get that I'm better than you from that. And he's like, well, you said that you'd studied the Bible and you'd been to seminary and you think since we haven't been to seminary and we don't have our doctorate degree, we're not smart enough and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, I never said that. I never indicated that. I never even brought myself into the conversation. I was trying to make the point, if you're studied on something, non-studied people don't come and criticize, right? And so if you don't know your Bible and you've never studied it, atheists should not be able to come and criticize scripture. So that that was the point, good or bad. So this guy wanted me to ask his forgiveness, and I told him no. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're hurt. I really am. But brother, I didn't intentionally sin against you. I didn't say anything wrong. I I didn't even make this about me, and I'm sorry you feel like I think I'm better than you, but I did not say that. So, you know, I wasn't trying to be rude to him, but I was trying to say, look, brother, you gotta you gotta establish the fault. You know, and so that goes back to, yeah. well, I don't like your dress or I don't like the color of your car, or you said something yesterday that I didn't like. Okay, but is it sin? Yeah. And that's what you've got to determine. Is this sin? You know, so I Which mean, to me is why why that would bring us into the next step. I mean, that's why there's a logical progression yeah. of pulling in. So you go one-on-one, and yeah. the hope is that you can resolve it. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't go to everybody else because everybody else can't solve it. You don't go to your best friend and gossip because they can't solve it. There's only one person that can solve it, the person who offended you. You go to them. All right, so step three now in our progression, if you go to the person and, and it doesn't go well, and you don't agree, then what do you do? You take a fellow brother or sister uh, with you as really a moderator, as a, as a witness to what is happening in that conversation, and go again to the offender. So it says, if it doesn't work with your, if it does work with your brother, you've gained your Rejoice. brother, hallelujah, mm-hmm. life goes on. If it doesn't work, you take two or three with you so that every word may be established. Yeah. Now, Adams says, I believe it's him, that that is, that is talking about counseling. So your, your two or three witnesses are people that are trustworthy in Scripture, and they come as counselors to the situation. So they come in to sit, to listen, to say, okay, I'm hearing both of you. I see where you disagree. Here's what we think. So Scripture says, you know, you get two or three witnesses around you, and you you let them make the determination. Okay, so the hope is, okay, we've not been able to solve it on our own, so we're going to get two or three people we trust that are witnesses that can establish every issue biblically. That's what they're establishing. 
They're trying to establish, is there biblical fault here, or are you just getting overly sensitive about everything that's happening? Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's say that doesn't work, and you, you have the counselors, and you sit in the room, and you're like, okay, we're trying to resolve this. Can you please? Let's work through this. Doesn't work. Nope, we still have differences. I'm not going to do that. Then what's the next step? Then you uh, tell it to the church at large. How would you do that? Flesh that out because I bet everybody goes, oh, how would that, what would that look like? I mean, time, ha- I would imagine some time has passed. So it's not like the same day these steps are not all happening like within 20 minutes of each other. There's there's time that has overlapped. There's been time for prayer and repentance, you know, to possibly take place. Um, but you would have, you know, the church leadership come to the church and say, hey, we've been dealing with this situation. This is how what's been done. Here's all the conversations that have been had. This is how it's been responded to. And you tell the church that this person, we do see there's a legitimate sin that has been committed. That's a public serious sin. And um, you tell the church to pray for this person. Or if a certain amount of time has passed and you'd say, you know, we're going to vote this person out of membership. We don't See their their lifestyle, their unrepentant um, nature is going against their profession of faith, right? You're saying yeah. you're not you're you're saying you're a Christian, but you're not following Jesus. There's a there's a uh, a disconnect here, and so a Christian repents, right? And so if you're not repenting, you're not following Jesus. We can no longer affirm your profession of faith is a valid one, and so we pray for this person to repent. But that's what it says. You know, in verse 17, he says, if he refuses to listen to even to the church, so the entire church is united, right? Not just two or three witnesses, but the pastors, the membership are like, yeah, you are at fault. You are in sin. Then it says, consider them a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, and that's where Adams would say those are actually two steps. Okay. So uh, let me recount. He would say step one is personal discipline. Step two is go and show him the fault. Step three is two or three witnesses. Step four, tell it to the church. Okay. Okay, so he would say, you first go to the church and tell the church. Now, why would we want to tell the church? Because then it's going to be gossip. It's going to be everybody talking. Well, what happened? No, we go to the church because in the church, they uh, hopefully our members will have formed relationships with that brother or sister in Christ who has struggled. And so maybe they know something that other people don't know are like those who are directly involved, and they can maybe go to that brother or sister who is in sin and kind of give a last warning or, you know, an encouragement, please repent, uh, do this, uh, you know, kind of share the gospel with them, that kind of thing. And again, it's just another safety net. I mean, if the entire church, I mean, you might have, you know, two or three people who you're just like, well, these two, three people don't like me, they're against me. But if the entire church is, you know, knows the situation and they all agree, I mean, that is a powerful statement yeah. that the church has agreed that you are in sin and you need to repent. You need to turn back from your lifestyle, whatever you're doing that you think is, you know, not worthy of repenting of. And that's a powerful statement to that person. Like, we all agree and we think what you're doing is wrong. So, I mean, for that person to continue on in that unrepentant sin, I mean, that's just powerful. I mean, that's So to summarize, when you tell it to the church, the church has a responsibility. 
it's not just to tell the church. They're supposed to do something. Yeah. They're supposed to now do those various steps to try to see reconciliation, which is what you guys are saying. So, like, if we had a case and we we told it to the church, the point is not just to inform you. The point is for you, the body of Christ, to then take up the mantle and say, okay, now I'm going to counsel this person, and we're all going to say the same thing collectively together. Now, that does several things. I mean, one, the the old practice that is now looked down upon, shaming. I mean, shame produces good things that protect us. You know, there's things we won't do because we don't want the disapproval of groups and people. And so there is power, positive peer pressure in the right direction— in that word shaming, cultures have lost that. There is no shame any longer. People do whatever, however, whenever, and there is no shaming. And so we ought to be ashamed. I mean, really, we, we my, you know, older folks used to say they ought to be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> but now nobody young would there say no that. Yeah. They would be like, they ought to be proud of themselves. <laughs> oh. Be you. You be you. Be happy. Do what makes you fulfilled, but yet the older generation would have said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And I think we've lost that, and I'm not going to apologize for saying that. Mm-hmm. So, no, I will not apologize to you guys. Um, but I'm offended. No, I, I know. I know. <laughs> but there's shame, and there's right shame. So the church then needs to go to that person. And this is where I think we fail as well, because the church is like, well, I don't really know what to do. Well, here's what you don't do. When you see them at a party or down the street or whatever, oh, hey, we love you. We miss you. Nothing happened. Oh, I'm so happy you're going to the church down the street who took you in and didn't care at all. True story. Um, You know, I'm so glad. Hallelujah. Um, No, no. I mean, you need to, you need as a member to say, look, I love you. We're praying for you. You need to repent. I know that's not party fair, but you probably ought to say something like that or something like, hey, I'm here for you. If I can ever talk with you. Oh, yeah, good. I just want to tell you I need to heal. No, you need to repent. I mean, that's that's what needs to happen. Now, I don't know that too many churches, and I'm saying this about every church I've ever pastored, I don't know that churches do this part well. That's really hard. And that's a long, lengthy teaching process, but it's got to get to the point where the the body of Christ exerts positive peer pressure to say, look, the Bible says this. So you got a, a, a person who leaves their spouse, and they leave their spouse for no reason, and, you know, they go off. The body of Christ should be calling that person. Hey, you know, they, they told us tonight about this, and I want you to know I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for your marriage. I mean, we ought to have the boldness to do that. And then they wouldn't think, yeah, it's such a great thing, and I'll just go on down the street or whatever. No, I mean, this is biblical, and you got we got to stick to Scripture, or else the Scripture is meaningless. If we're not going to do this yeah. to our own people, you don't have any gospel to preach to anybody else. So I don't know. What well, do you and if you're a believer, I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, you're you're saying that sin is no big deal when you— uh, are the offender in this case, and you are unrepentant, and you go on down the street, and a church even takes that person in, they are affirming that person in their sin. Um, and that's that's dangerous. 
uh, for the the Christian witness. And Ephesians 3.10, like we were talking about the other day, that does not display uh, the wisdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ when churches affirm someone in their sin. I agree. Amen. And I pray we never do that, you know, that we don't accidentally do that. We actually ask when you come to be a member here, one of the questions that's asked in the membership interview with a pastor is, are there any problems at your former church that we need to be aware of? Mm -hmm. And if they say yes, okay, can you tell us about that? Sometimes it's no fault of their own. 99% of the time, there's no problems. That's good. So we ask the question, we're trusting them. I mean, we can't like go investigate everything, everybody. Somebody come up and like, did you know that this happened? I'm like, no, but, you know, we ask them and we trust them and we hope that they're telling us the truth. And so we try to do our due diligence. But, yeah, I'm baffled. And all my life I've been baffled because literally I've been in churches where there's been cases of just the, the people were just blatantly disobeying God, just blatantly disobeying the word and you take a stand on that as a pastor you take a stand on it privately personally whatever sometimes publicly and they go down the street and you just wonder like what in the world is that church thinking do they care i don't know i mean does it glorify god i don't think so but I don't know. And, you know, I mean, I I think I know, but I mean, there's so much I don't know, you know, so I want to be hesitant to just like cast judgment, but I'm baffled. Mm. That's the best word I can describe because I'm like, I just don't think this honors God just pretending like nothing happened and you let him go down there and do that. And I don't know. I think that's a great segue into why we need church discipline. Yeah, well, let's finish the steps. So (laughs) you tell it to the church, and the church has to act. Then after the church has been told, and there's time enough for them to act, the last step, which I think is number five, is Mm -hmm. then you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. If they don't repent. If they don't repent. Now, the goal is repentance. The goal is restoration. The goal is not to punish anybody. Mm -hmm. The goal is not to be punitive. It's to see that person come to their senses, come back, and go, okay, God, yes, you're right. I shouldn't be in that affair, so I'm going to ditch the affair, and I'm going to come back to my marriage, and I'm going to work on it. I mean, that's what your goal is, something of that nature. Right, and specifically, the in that case, the pastors would recommend the removal of that person from church membership, but the church would have to have the responsibility in affirming that member. They would to have be to removed. vote. Yeah. Yeah. Because you vote people into membership. Yeah. And then you vote them out. Right. So yeah, they would have to vote and they would have to say, yeah, we believe that this person is in sin and we collectively say we're removing them from the membership role until such time as they come back and repent. And we pray for that. And we pray for that, but we turn them over. So what does it yeah. mean to be a Gentile and a tax collector? And we've already mentioned this, but we turn them over to what? Satan for what? Discipline, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So what verse is that? Paul says, turn them over basically to Satan and the devil will... So that the... And for the hopes that that person's I want to say soul second, would be saved. Second Corinthians 5 or 1 Corinthians 5? First uh, Timothy one, he mentions First uh, Timothy one twenty, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom oh, I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So they were shipwrecking their faith, um, teaching false doctrines. Yeah. So literally, that's what happens. And when the church 
collectively does that. All right, those are the steps. That's how you do it. Hopefully, you never get to step number five. So it's kind of like DEFCON 5, which is all-out war. You never get to that point. Hopefully, step one, step two solves the problem. Nobody ever knows about it. It's dealt with and it's done, and the Lord restores the relationship. All right, let's go to uh, why we do this. So why would a church want to do this? Because it's it's much easier to just overlook these things, take everybody in. Who cares? Why would you even ask that question in an interview? We just want them in church. We want to protect the flock. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, for instance, unlike the church that would take in that that member who had conflict with a previous church who is in sin currently, uh, if we allow that person to come into our, our church and become a member and plug themselves into uh, our ministry, I mean, just like cancer or a virus, that sin is going to spread and it's going to fester in the camp and it's going to, I mean, it could disrupt everything that God is doing in our midst um, because we are not protecting on the front lines and saying, no, if you have unresolved conflict, I mean, you have to make that right uh, before you you can join this church. Yeah, we, we would love for you to join, but you got to make it right. Yeah. So protect the flock is one reason why we would do it. What else? For the love of that individual. I mean, if they think they're a Christian and they're living in sin, they're not bothered by that, they don't have their conscience is not being pricked or convicted, they may not be a believer. They may not be Christian. And so it's not loving to say, oh, that's fun for you to go off and have an affair and do this or that, and we won't say a word, um, and we'll let you just go to hell thinking that you're a Christian. And with the stamp of our church approval saying that you're a church member, we think you're a Christian, and then the whole time you may be on your way to eternal damnation, that is not loving at all. And so we want to be clear to them that this is what the Bible says, this is what it says if you're not repenting and you're not believing in the gospel, that you're soul is in peril. And so the loving thing to that person is not to sweep it under the rug, not to ignore it, but to call them out and say, this, we are in serious doubt of whether you truly know Jesus. Like you need to repent of your sins and believe in him. And so if we love that person, which is what a covenant is, what a church is, is a, a body of believers who have covenanted to hold each other accountable, to walk with Christ together. Well, it's not loving to let someone just go off the rails and sin and not say something. So, right, loving people in Jesus' name is not winking at their sin and saying, hope it works out for you in that adultery. Right. Yeah, yeah we're going to love you anyway. That That's not loving. Why? Because the judgment of God comes on Speaking sin. the truth in love, not, yeah. not avoiding conflict. Right. Avoiding love conflict. without truth is not love. So to love yourself. Yeah. To love your good. Another thing to think about is the unbelievers— looking from the outside in at the church, right? I mean, yeah. so much of the church, I mean, you have the abuse stuff, you've got, you know, the prosperity gospel and rich pastors with their, you know, stealing basically the sheep's money for sneakers and jets and all this kind of stuff in mansions. And the unbelieving world looks at that and like, are you kidding me? Like, y'all are no different than the most work- wicked pagans we know. And so to have church discipline purifies the church, makes our witness that much more brighter and we're different from the world. But if we never discipline any of these, you know, unrepentant people who are possibly unbelievers in the body, well, then we literally are going to become worldly and just like the world in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so much so that, I mean, historically, one of the true marks of the church was church discipline to the point where, like, the reformers were like, if you don't do church discipline as a church, you're not even a true church because you're just going to have all these unbelievers in your body who are living in unrepentant sin. And so that's how seriously they took it. Like, if you don't actually do what the Bible says in Matthew 18, like, we're wondering if you're even actually a biblical church is what people in church history would say. So... Any other reasons why? Those are all good reasons. I mean, I guess last you'd say the glory of God, which is kind of all wrapped up in all this, but, I mean, the church is to display God's glory, and so God disciplines, right, what is it? Uh, judgment begins in the household of God, and so we need to make sure our house is in order if we're going to glorify God to the utmost of our ability. Um, again, we shouldn't wink at sin, and God doesn't wink at sin either, so we should, mm-hmm. for his glory, do this. Yeah. Yeah, because we bear his name. That's right. And so we want to honor him, and we want to do what he's commanded. That's right. So I think those are all good reasons. So, again, just kind of to wrap up, if you have a conflict with a person, how do you deal with it? Well, the world has all these different conflict management methods, but the Bible says if you're believers, this is how you handle it. This is what you do. So— let me throw one final thing. Let's say two people have a conflict and they don't go to the same church or it's with a parachurch ministry or whatever. What what would you tell them to do? Because I've been asked that question before. Well, you know, they go over here to this church that doesn't even believe all that and I go over here and, you know, I still tell them, well, you try to do the best you can. You know, you try to do Matthew 18 to the best of your ability, but, I, you know, it's not always going to be perfect in every scenario, right? Because let's say that you and a friend who went to different churches had a problem. You're not going to be able to tell it to the church. You know, you see what I'm saying? There's there's a, a level, um, but I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it seems like Matthew 18 is like within the same local church body. I mean, I'll have an example, I guess, I shared from a Christian camp ministry, which was a totally different denomination that I do not, you know, agree with, but... Years ago, I was a camp counselor, and I actually was gossiping about one of my fellow, uh, what do you call it, camp leaders, and was saying stuff about her, and she overheard, was outside the door, had overheard words I had said, and she didn't come to me one-on-one, you know, technically you could say, but she went to our camp director, who was our boss, and told him, and he called me into this meeting with this this, uh, this leader and kind of confronted me and told me, you know, what I had done and how it had affected her. And I was immediately convicted, broke down in tears. So that wasn't exactly what Matthew 18, you know, illustrates, but it was like, you don't let things sweep under the rug. You, you know, she told the boss, you know, kind of, you know, if you had a situation at work, you know, you'd go to your boss and you would have a meeting with the coworkers who had an issue with one another and you would deal with the conflict. Right. So it may not be like the pastor and like, it's exactly following Matthew 18, but deal with conflict, go to people. If you need to involve someone at a higher level, like a boss or a pastor, do that. But don't just sweep things under the rug if you're truly, if there's a sin that's been committed. Yeah. And I think that's a Um, good point. I mean, you do the best you can in in other situations and scenarios. You use the resources that are out there, follow protocol. You know, your your business may have a protocol. Your HR department may have a protocol. You follow that. But when it's the church and when it's the church that you go to and the people that you fellowship with, yeah. you, you do that to the best of your ability. 
And that's so important, so important yeah. to just keep the peace. That's being a peacemaker. That's right. Because these same biblical principles, I mean, apply in different ways. I mean, in the job, if you see someone committing some heinous sin at your job site and you're just like, do do it's not at church, not my problem. I mean, that's, that is not right either. That doesn't honor the Lord. I mean, whether it's at camp or Amazon or McDonald's, I mean, sin is going to be everywhere. And, you know, we don't have necessarily the same exact responsibility as a church member, but we should still, you know, deal with things that we see. Yeah. So blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah. They shall inherit the earth, which is full of confrontation. So they'll have to keep being peacemakers. Just kidding. All right. Well, on that note, we're done for today. Hopefully this has been beneficial and helpful as we've talked about conflict management. So guys, I need to talk with both of you after this podcast. <laughs> you sinned against me. I hope it's about our sponsors. <laughs> Who are our sponsors? Carly Simon. Jay Adams. Jay Adams. J.W. Adams. J- no, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I've never thought about that. There's Jay Adams, the author, and then there's J.W. Adams. Yeah. That's perfect. Okay. All right. And your uh, father's air conditioning union. Union. In- union. Local 614. Baptist DeSoto. <laughs> Baptist DeSoto. That's right. Carly Simon. We said her. Did we leave anybody out? You mentioned the Carpenters, but it was in passing. So, so yeah. And yeah, they were weird. All right. On that note.